In 2016, NATO countries adopted a cyber defense pledge, recognizing cyberspace as, and I quote, an operational domain in which NATO must defend itself as effectively as it does in the air, on land, and at sea. It's a remarkable change that puts the digital battle space on equal footing with conventional theaters of war. Our guests today are helping shape the strategies and policies that will help NATO compete in this new era of cyber conflict. Christian Lifflander is the head of NATO's cyber defense section. Before that, he was director of policy planning at the Estonian Ministry of Defense. He's also a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and has a master's degree from Georgetown University. We're also joined by Soren Dukaru of the Hudson Institute. He is the former NATO Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges, where he guided policymaking in cyber defense and in counterterrorism. Before that, he served as ambassador to the United States from the country of Romania, and also served as Romania's representative at the UN. So how do you wage and win war in cyberspace? We're about to find out. I'm Andrew Walworth, and this is Real Clear Cyber Today. Podcast presented by Raytheon. From connected devices to infrastructure, to critical mission systems, Raytheon crosses networks, markets, and continents, defending every side of cyber to make the world a safer place. Christian Lifflander and Soren Dokaru, welcome to the studio. Soren, how is the conflict in cyberspace the same and how is it different from other domains of operations? The NATO approach, NATO strategic approach to this um, field has evolved uh, with a threat landscape. Uh, we saw the first uh, uh, links of cyber to military operations uh, in 2008 in the war in Georgia. We saw much more in uh, Ukraine. And um, then we, we, we saw it uh, in, in s on so many um, um, occasions that uh, the conclusion is uh, today it's hard to imagine uh, any um, uh, military uh, operation without this cyber uh, component. So, so from really this, so from this point of view, I think the 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 the, the, the recognition of cyberspace as an operational domain uh, tried to uh, address the issues of training, of planning, of uh, doctrine. Um, very much uh, with the same uh, tools and the same approach like the uh, physical domains. Christian, it, it does seem that cyberspace is different from these other domains in at least one way, and that the line between even espionage and, and what would be considered an, an attack is somewhat blurry and really seems like it's sort of this continuum. How do you draw the d distinction between different types of attack? Going back a step to the sort of uh, similarities and differences between the two, um, what, uh, when you look at what is happening nowadays, I think, and, and just uh, would like to echo the words of, of, of Sorin here, um, indeed, um, what matters quite often is the effect um, and uh, whether you deploy a kinetic uh, weapon system or then a, a cyber effect. Kinetic is, of course, a euphemism for guns, bombs, things that actually destroy things, right? That's, that's considered kinetic warfare, Indeed. just for our, our listeners, uh, versus uh, non-kinetic warfare, which would be cyber and other activities where, where no one gets 
physically hurt. Indeed, and so if you sort of take that approach, of course, then the cyber effect is but another way, another means to an end. I mean, it sort of complements sort of the existing toolbox. So, so that's why very much, I mean, what we're trying to do at NATO is, is really to sort of not do something or anything different uh, from what is already there. So um, the, the operational people, the, the people that actually sort of, you know, conduct operations would now have cyber effects at their disposal, but we wouldn't create a, a cyber person or a, or a cyber directorate or what have you. It's just the same procedures, the same joint targeting, for example. It's the same operational planning procedures and mechanisms, um, but with cyber incorporated into them. So that's the sort of similarity uh, to other existing um, sort of tools at our disposals. Now, when it comes to the differences, um, I would give you that uh, that cyber is a bit uh, unique in this regard. In, indeed, um, it is not something that is uh, sort of uh, ready-made um, that you can take off the shelf, just push the button. You have to develop um, these over time um, and um, there is also sort of the intelligence angle that you alluded to. So that I think also creates the main difference uh, with the kinetic, uh, going back to uh, the, the same <laughs> the word that I used, uh, the kinetic field. Uh, if I may just uh, just uh, jump in, uh, I mean, although um, cyberspace um, means the virtual space, uh, um, the, the ones and zeros and the code uh, uh, that uh, is becoming weaponized, uh, but one should have in mind that uh, a lot of uh, cyber attacks can have impact in the physical world, and uh, it this can happen due to SCADA systems, of uh, industrial control systems, uh, um, critical uh, infrastructure that could be affected uh, and could, frankly, blow up. So and an attack on a nuclear power plant, an attack on a, a pipeline, pipeline electrical, electrical grid, the kinds of things that big infrastructure. Not, not nuclear power plant uh, so far, but mm -hmm. uh, against the pipelines, uh, it did happen. So. Uh, um, I think with the Internet of Things, with a growing number of uh, sensors and uh, um, I would say physical gadgets that uh, are connected uh, to the Internet, the possibility of more physical impact will actually grow. So we should not uh, discount this aspect. Something that, I, that people, uh, that Americans have been concerned about is Article 5, of course, which is Article 5 is the part of the NATO treaty that says that an attack on one is an attack on all. Can you imagine a cyber attack that would actually trigger uh, Article 5? What would it look like and how would that work? I think um, for the time being uh, we maintain constru constructive ambiguity in this regard. Tell us what constructive ambiguity is because I I sense a lot of that in my life personally, but I want to know what it means in this context. <laughs> well, in our context, it means that um, we have already basically explicitly um, uh, sort of made clear that collective defense also applies in cyber defense, that we are ready to invoke Article 5 in response to a cyber attack, just like we would in response to an, an attack that would take place, you know, via um, conventional means. Um, but uh, I guess the ambiguity part, uh, the second part of that sort of uh, term, uh, comes from the fact that we have not uh, put in place any thresholds or, um, you know, there is no automaticity to that decision. It is a political uh, sort of decision, uh, a judgment call that really, I think, depends on the, the specific instance. Um, the consequences would have to be taken into account. Um, and also, if you look back in history, um, I think it does not have to be symmetrical in kind. It can also really um, contain um, any of the measures 
uh, from the diplomatic or informational. When you say symmetrical, you mean the response doesn't have to be a cyber response. It could Indeed. be a different kind of response, right? Indeed. It's important to, to highlight that uh, not having a, a threshold, I think it's also key for uh, deterrence. Because if you would fix a, a threshold, then there will be a, a push always to operate below it and then just not to tra uh, trigger such uh, um, Article 5 uh, because of crossing of a, of a, of a red line. And um, again, uh, in invoking Article 5 after a cyber attack compared to a kinetic attack, it shouldn't be seen as very different because uh, uh, the, uh, the um, let's say, keeping the threshold ambiguous was the original idea of the founding fathers. And this is why the only, uh, the first and only time Article 5 was invoked was uh, after 9-11. Uh, and this was actually a scenario that was never envisaged by the founding fathers. So I think it's wisdom uh, in this idea of uh, we'll see it when we get there. And it's based on a political decision by the uh, allies and then the political decision also uh, will include the response forms which are the most appropriate and they could be political diplomatic or they could be military or also kinetic. I want to get back to deterrence in a minute because that's an important um, uh, point that we want to pick up on but you're both Eastern European I'd like to just get a sense of that um, Estonia and Romania. Estonia was annexed by the Soviet Union uh, and Romania was a member of the Warsaw Pact. Um, so tell me, both, from both of your perspectives, and we'll start with you, um, Christoph, how does that history inform your views on cybersecurity in this in sort of NATO context? Well, I have a, uh, perhaps a sort of a, a very quick, uh, a short sort of intro to how cyber found me, not that I found cyber. I mean, I'm a computer engineer out of West Point, but uh, I mean, I have to tell you that I, I don't really like computers, uh, even today. Um, but I happened to be um, there when the 2007 cyber attacks uh, took place against my country. Tell our listeners just a little bit about what that 2007 cyber attack was. Indeed, I mean that was a. I mean a decision was made by the government to relocate a, um, a statue um, a, 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 that was basically commemorating the Red Army victory in the Second World War from the center of the city to the war cemetery. And uh, this uh, sort of resulted in uh, physical violence uh, out in the streets, uh, but also violence in the networks. Uh, that basically meant that uh, the country was uh, subjugated to a distributed denial of service attack, um, which meant that uh, some of the services were unavailable. Um, and I tell you, you know, for us, and uh, what was interesting was that we had built this infrastructure. We had built, you know, the e-economy, so to speak. Um, very much with prosperity in mind and really not focusing on the security aspects of it until, of course, this was exposed and, and we had to sort of take uh, another look at um, how do we actually go about securing our way of life. So that really was a, was a turning point for me that, um, that then resulted in me having to sort of put together the very first national cybersecurity strategy and, and that's how my journey uh, with cyber started um, very much really sort of inspired uh, by that particular incident. It's so interesting that Estonia is really at the forefront of so many things regarding the internet and cyber. Um, I don't think many people sort of appreciate that. And um, Romania was, uh, of course, under Ceausescu, was one of the most oppressive regimes in, in the, even within the, uh, the Eastern Bloc. And how does, coming from Romania, how did you get uh, involved in cyberspace? Well, I used to be a 
graduate of computer science uh, in the old times um, in Romania also because uh, sciences were not uh, politically or ideologically contaminated. So uh, um, it was something worse to, to study and, and pursue. I did change to political science uh, and to diplomacy uh, after 1989. Uh, speaking about uh, the, the, the legacy that someone like, like me or Christian brings, I think it's a sense of uh, uh, personal uh, experience uh, uh, of uh, the, the how, how um, difficult and uh, how painful uh, it is uh, to live in a society where the basic uh, freedoms uh, of uh, uh, expression, um, of uh, voting or having political choices uh, because uh, there were systems with one uh, party, how important uh, they are and these kind of uh, values um, might be taken for granted by a number of uh, generations that uh, um, were born with them in um, you know, Western Europe, in North America. Um, but my generation, myself, uh, um, have this uh, very strong sentiment that nothing should be taken for, um, uh, for granted. Uh, we have to constantly nurture uh, these values, these uh, principles, the institutions that uh, really uh, define them. And frankly, um, our security uh, should not be taken for, uh, for granted. There are no strategic holidays or security um, um, holidays. We need to understand that uh, security and stability has a price uh, and it's important to invest in them. I've just got one more question about Estonia in particular, which is that this uh, Estonia has a voluntary uh, cyber defense league. So my understanding is that was almost sort of modeled in part on the idea of the Minutemen from the American Revolution, that there would be sort of yeomen, f freemen, farmers or whatever, who would come together if the nation needed them. Is that working and, and is that a model that could be used elsewhere? Indeed, I mean, the, uh, the, the model, model was the same because, I mean, uh, during 2007 attacks, uh, what I personally saw happen uh, was that um, people that knew each other, that had worked together, um, also sort of uh, almost sort of formed these coalitions and formed these groups in order to deal uh, with an attack. And um, it didn't matter if you were in a defense community. Um, people also joined from the telecoms, the internet service providers, from banks, etc. And I think uh, that sort of event uh, served as a, then as a sort of almost like a primer uh, for that future cyber defense leak that, leak that was created. I think if there's a one story uh, that or you know a lesson learned from it is that uh, human networks are as important as the physical networks. It's not only about technology; it's also about uh, knowing people and working with people in order to make that technology work. Fascinating. It's uh, just such an interesting approach to, to a problem. It's hard for in the professionalized world we live in to think that, oh yeah, of course, there's all these resources out there that we could reach out and tap in a, in, if we needed to in an emergency. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about NATO doctrine and strategy with my guests, Christian Liflander of NATO's Cyber Defense Section and Soren Dekaru of the Hudson Institute. I'm Andrew Walworth, and this is Real Clear Cyber Today. We'll be right back.
In a world where every degree, every dollar, every defender, and every domain is connected, seeing every angle is essential. That's why Raytheon works across networks, markets, and continents, combining human ingenuity with artificial intelligence to outpace and outmatch every threat, to protect commercial enterprise, critical infrastructure, and mission-critical systems, to deliver trusted, innovative solutions that secure our way of life and defend every side of cyber. This is Raytheon, making our increasingly connected world a safer place. Because when everything is connected, security is everything. Sorry. Let's go back to doctrine for a minute. Um, so, you know, some people call it the fifth dimension of war. You have land, sea, air, space, and now cyber. Is it really getting integrated into doctrinal thinking now at places like NATO, where, where it's going to be baked into doctrine going forward? Actually, uh, updating uh, NATO doctrine is, uh, has become a, um, one of the priorities after this recognition of cyberspace as an operational uh, domain. And there is a strand of um, uh, work that um, has um, started and uh, um, it included uh, some expertise from member states. Um, then it will land uh, at a military committee level, at NATO headquarters, and then at political level, at the North Atlantic uh, Council level. So, you know, to, to make a long story short, uh, yes, uh, updating the doctrine uh, after making this important recognition is a priority. And so let's go back to this concept of deterrence. If people don't know you, you have the capability to do something or you've done something, it's hard for, for them to know um, that you um, have the ability to stop them from doing something. So how in cyberspace does that work? How do you make sure people know what capability you have and that you're willing to use it? Well, I think deterrence has a num number of um, aspects that are worth to, to highlight. First, uh, you can do deterrence by denial, by denying the attacker the results uh, of his, uh, his attacks. And for that, focusing on resilience, uh, on all the, the defensive aspects is key, and actually proving this, showing this through exercises, through uh, uh, you know, withholding attacks and, and, and so on. Um, then, um, you know, situational uh, awareness uh, capabilities, uh, including attribution capabilities, are important in, um, in themselves. So, uh, also because uh, they uh, are the basis of uh, potential uh, deterrence uh, by punishment. And um, in NATO, uh, uh, the deterring the, the cyber attacks uh, has never been considered as symmetric as Christian was uh, saying. So um, uh, responses to cyber attacks, uh, yes, should be proportionate and so on, but not necessarily through the same means. They could be uh, with other means uh, as well, sometimes political or economic sanctions, other times with uh, kinetic means. There is, and I guess what you're alluding to is that there is a bit of a sort of escalatory dynamic to that domain. I mean, if nobody knows that you have this capability, then you are more likely, it's more difficult to deter. Um, so, I mean, that just basically tells you that I think at least for some countries it's a use it or lose it proposition. 
whereby you know they would have to demonstrate that they have this capability and that they're willing to use it in order to deter potential adversaries. Um, just to echo what Soren said, I think you know uh, there are two elements to it um, uh, also that are important to take into account. One is resilience. Define resilience for us. Well, um, just basically, I guess the sort of the simplest way in this context would be to make yourself as unappealing to the adversary as possible, meaning that you build your networks, uh, you know, you build the network defense, um, so as to uh, not really, uh, you know, uh, deter the attacks, because I think it's impossible nowadays. I mean, it's, it's really the detection that has replaced defense as a strategy. Uh, but to, to make them robust enough so that you can recover quickly, so that you can, your networks um, are able to sort of sustain the hit and, and still sort of continue to, to, to work or, you know, you're able to reconstitute. Um, and the second part is, of course, once again, what Sorin alluded to is, is really to put it into a, a broader cross-domain deterrence toolbar, uh, uh, sort of, uh, uh, to, yeah. Uh, environment. It does not have to be uh, cyber versus cyber. You can also respond with other means at your disposal. Uh, but uh, I guess I agree with you, it, it's that when you look at this environment and the fact that many different actors are getting uh, into this game, um, uh, as well as the sort of the increasing uh, sort of uh, surface area, uh, there are many more vulnerabilities, especially with the uh, IoT. Um, it, it sort of tells you that uh, I think we will see uh, cyber attacks become more common um, and uh, also potentially more damaging. So it seems to me in part when I look at this it reminds me of the beginning of the nuclear era in that we really had to rethink fundamentally what constituted things like deterrence, what constituted things like engagement um, and really was a very sort of uh, um, difficult time for uh, at least here in the United States rethinking what would uh, happen. We're here at the Hudson Institute. This is Herman Kahn's first think tank. Herman Kahn is famous for his thinking on nuclear war and his is uh, identified with the phrase thinking the unthinkable. I mean, are we going through that now in cyber, do you think? Are we at the beginning of that where people really have to sort of throw away a lot of the preconceptions of what, cons what constituted conflict and how you dealt with it and really look at this fresh and because it's a new, it is a new world, isn't it? I think it, it's it's a uh, really interesting way you um, uh, you put it uh, because you're right. The nuclear era uh, pushed for a different thinking because of this mutual assured destruction element, uh, which was a very high threshold, let's say, confrontation um, discussion. Um, with cyber, um, it's um, it's also new, but uh, the the main difficulty is how to address. Uh, this kind of um, below the threshold of armed attack uh, proliferation of um, um, you know incidents uh, operations and, and 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 so on because uh, you cannot ignore them uh, they affect uh, parts of uh, uh, you know, economics uh, due to potentially inflicting harm to infrastructure, communications, transport, uh, energy, and so on. Uh, one could see that they can have even strategic effect if they uh, impact the, the fabric of democracies, like election process, uh, um, but uh, uh, they, are, uh, they might be below the threshold of the armed um, attack. So uh, this in itself generates a, a whole um, a new uh, effervescence of, of thinking, of analysis, uh, 
um, how the escalation model uh, would um, work. And um, I think the, the taking um, too much uh, um, inspiration from the, let's say, the nuclear um, deterrent theory uh, is not exactly uh, the, the way to go. Uh, yes, it's, it is revolutionary, but um, it um, addresses uh, a different threshold. This is how I would define it. But is, isn't that the, the danger I'm alluding to, is not that we will see this through the exact same lens. Or I, think that is, I, mean, I think that's a legitimate point. And, and what I see when I, when I read about this is what I see people sort of referring back to terms and ideas that seem that they come from the kinetic world, uh, and trying to apply them to uh, the non-kinetic world. If, um, analogies are always dangerous. So yes, you have to, exactly. That's the <laughs> thing. Because you, you want to compare apples to apples and not yes. apples to oranges. I mean, if there is a sort of a, a link to the sort of the nuclear side, I mean, uh, and if I were to compare to, to what happened in the nuclear field, I'd, I'd say where we are in cyber right now is, is pretty much the same as in the nuclear field. You know, the first train, chain reaction has taken place in Chicago, um, but there's a long way to go until we actually come up with the doctrines and what have you. Uh, also, uh, partly because the technology shifts, technology develops, and, and, and really, so you have to be also mentally agile um, uh, in order to sort of, um, and flexible, in order to see, I mean, uh, what kinds of approaches, what kinds of doctrines uh, work and what don't. So it, unfortunately, that leaves us almost in a situation where you're flying the airplane while building it. Um, but, I mean, uh, uh, once again, be careful when using analogies. I mean, it's, uh, you want to compare apples, apples to apples. So looking five years out, where do you think NATO will be when it comes to cyber warfare? Well, I, 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 see, I see continuity and change. Um, I think when it comes to the continuity, uh, the basics will not change. I mean, whatever we have agreed in the Washington Treaty, I think still remains uh, valid. It will still be a defensive alliance. We will still exercise restraint. Um, some of the basics will still be the same. Where I see a change occurring is is how do we apply these sort of um, age-old, you know, true and tested principles to this new domain. Um, when it comes to the use of, for example, voluntary effects, I mean, how do nations use their capabilities as part of NATO operations? Um, I think there we we, we have to mature uh, a little bit. I mean, we are really in the beginning of a of a much longer journey. Um, how do we make sure that something that used to be a technical phenomenon will now be, become uh, much more of an operational phenomenon um, to be used by operational commanders. How do we make sure that we keep it also as a political phenomenon? How do we, uh, for example, you know, coming back to your point about the deterrence, how do we make sure that we're also able to deal with these issues um, that are below the threshold, um, that we have a role, that, uh, that we stay relevant also in that space? I think these are the kinds of challenges that we have to deal with in the next five years. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. There's more information about cybersecurity, including more information on NATO's changing strategy on our website. Just go to realcleardefense.com and you'll get a prompt to go to our cybersecurity homepage. Today's podcast was engineered by Ron Kaiser. We hope you'll join us next time. I'm Andrew Walworth for Real Clear Politics. Thanks for listening. <laughs>